0: Have you ever said, it's not fair? It's not fair, is it? Children say that a lot. Why have they got more than me? Why can't I stay up late? Why do I have to eat this? It's not just children, is it? It's adults as well. We say it quite a lot uh, in, in in the world, uh, in sports. VAR, I mean, you know, <coughs> if the ref and the assistant ref agree, I think that should be it. It's not fair that twice, Ellen, uh, what was it called? Why, it's had a goals disallowed the last two games. It's not fair, is it? Fairness really bothers us in life in general, at work. You know, how, why are they being paid what they're being paid? It's not fair. And fairness, we think, is a good thing, isn't it? Generally, it is a good thing. Which is why we come to this parable, it's a little bit strange. And just to remind us, parables are simple stories told by Jesus, usually with a single point, a single point. There's almost always a twist or a catch or something to surprise us to make us question our worldview, question the way that we look at things, to question our prejudices, which we will find in this parable too. And thirdly, parables always always call forth a response. So they always usually have a single point, simple stories. They are there to make us question our worldview and they call forth a response, which is why when we come to this parable, because we're we all think fairness is good and fairness is good that we we need a fair world we need a fair a fair employer that this seems so strange it rubs us up the wrong way this parable doesn't seem quite right surely god is fair surely god will be fair yeah, i mean this is god <clears throat> there's actually let's just run through the story uh, briefly there's three elements if you like the laborers the manager and the wages so the labourers, first of all. The labourers worked when there was work. Actually really similar to people on zero-hours contra- uh, contracts today. A, a lot of people in the gig economy. If there's work, we'll pay. If there's no work, not my problem. How interesting that we've come back to those times. So if, if there was work, you got work. Uh, unlike today, if there was no work, uh, there was no benefits. So people stood in the marketplace, hoping that somebody would employ them, hoping that someone would give them some work for the day. It was risky. If there's no work today, you don't get paid, you don't eat tomorrow. So no work today, don't eat tomorrow, was the simple conclusion. The work was hard and was hot, as we hear in that story. Ten hours in the scorching sun, with the wind blowing in your face like a hairdryer, it's hard work. It was a tough life. And the pay was one silver coin, or a denarius, one silver coin. The same pay as for a soldier. So that's the labourers, that was them. And then, the, the, so the story starts with the manager. He goes out at six in the morning, early, early start. It's light, and he keeps, goes to the marketplace, finds some workers, and says, go and work in my field. I will pay you a day's wage. Fair enough, I'll pay you a silver coin. Then he goes back at 9 a.m., at 12 noon, at 3 p.m., <clears throat> and he keeps finding people who, keep, who have stood around doing nothing. He says, what are you doing? They say, well, nobody's hired us. He says, go and work in my field. I'll pay you whatever is right. He says to them, I will pay you whatever is right. And even at 5 p.m., he finds people standing there who are still not doing anything. And they sound like the least promising, don't they? They're the ones that nobody wants. The workers who can't get work, that nobody wants to employ them. And it sounds to me like he takes them on more out of compassion than I'm really going to get some work out of these people in one hour. Finally, it's six o'clock in the evening. Day is done. It's been a hard day. People, the workers come up to get their wages from the manager. And remember, what were the ones who started at 6am? What were they promised? Do you remember? Yeah, I don't know. it's a day's wage. And the, all the others were promised whatever is right. So everybody else was promised whatever is right, but we get shock after shock. First of all, the people who only, they've only done an hour's work, they turned up at 5 p.m. And they get a day's wage. Well, that's strange. And then the people who work started at 3 p.m. get a day's wage, and at 12 noon, and by now, the people who started at 9 a.m., especially those who started at 6 and have borne the brunt of the day's heat of thinking to themselves, well, it's probably good news. You know, we're going to get, proportionally, we're going to get several days' work. This this is a good manager. This is a really good manager. But shock after shock, they, uh, they get the same as the people who only did an hour. <coughs> and what would you have said? <coughs> I think many of us would have said, it's not fair. What's going on? It's, this is not fair the manager's reply is interesting he says i haven't cheated you i didn't cheat you i've given you everything i said i would give you let's just read that bit again in bold at the bottom so they come and say they complain those who were hired last but well, only an hour you've made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the work and the heat of the day but he answered one of them i'm not being unfair to you friend didn't you agree to work for a denarius? Take your pay and go. I want to give the one who was hired last the same as I gave you. Don't I have the right to do what I want with my own money? Or are you envious because I am generous? And then the killer line, so the last will be first and the first will be last. If you turn one page back in your Bible, that line immediately precedes this parable and immediately follows this parable. We won't dig into it but it's, an, it's a study area for the study groups this week. What does that mean, the last or first, and the first is last? We'll, con- we'll concentrate on the parable itself. <coughs> Which is kind of, it's almost saying to them, don't sulk. Why are you sulking? You've got what I said I was going to give you. Why are you sulking? Don't sulk. It seems a bit harsh, doesn't it? Really. Uh, God's idea of being generous doesn't seem to be very fair. It doesn't seem to be the same as my idea of fair or your idea of fair. And if you were the ones who turned up at 6am and done the work for the whole day, it doesn't feel good. It doesn't feel, feels unfair. <clears throat> Think, many of you have been Christians for decades, for as long as you can remember. You've been here in church, faithfully doing your work, do, volunteering for all kinds of things. And then is it really true that somebody who just leads a, a life of idleness, perhaps of petty crime, they don't treat their wife well, they're the worst person on the street, um, the worst person in my office, the one who always puts the blame on others, who never takes responsibility, person who never looks up when we walk past. Somehow, God reaches out to them and touches them. And at some age in their life, they, become, they get to know God and they get treated the, treated the same as me. That doesn't seem fair. <clears throat> Hold off on what you might think. And God's answer sounds a little off to us, doesn't it? Is that it? Don't sulk. That, that, that's not the answer I was expecting, Lord, after doing all this. And this idea, but what about me? Look at what I've done. Look, look at all the things that I've done is an idea that pops up again and again and again in Scripture. It's a theme, actually, about our prejudice. And it's repeated in Scripture. Can you think of any other stories in Scripture where somebody who's done nothing, or even less than nothing, gets treated the same as somebody who's done lots? Can you think of any stories? Yes. Prodigal son, the thief on the cross, actually. I never thought of that one. Actually, there are. I'm going to pick up three stories, right, of this common theme in Scripture, where God says at the end, it's not up to you, it's up to me. Don't sulk, it. it's not up to you, it's up to me. And the first one is the prodigal son, elder brother. It's a great story, isn't it? We have this young fellow who comes to his father and says, give me half of my money, I want to go and spend it. His father gives it to him, he goes away, and he wastes it on wine, women, and song, on reckless living. Finally, he has no money left, he has no friends left, and he finds himself working on a pig farm, and he thinks, even the pigs are eating better than me. I'll go home, and I'll tell my father, Father, I've sinned against you and against heaven, I'm no longer fit to be called your son. And as he approaches, he walks down the road, his father sees him and comes running out. And he grabs hold of him and the son says, but father, I'm, I'm, I'm no, I've sinned against you. I'm no longer fit to be called your son. And the father says, bring the purple robe. Put a ring on his finger. And the young fellow's arguing, saying, but father, I'm no longer fit to be called your son. Just take me on as a servant. And his father says, kill the fatted calf. We're going to have a party. My son is alive. We're going to have a party. Sounds good. But the son's elder brother, who we don't hear about, has been working all this time. He hasn't been wasting his father's money on reckless living. He hasn't been having parties. And he always ends up sulking. He says to his father, this son of yours has wasted everything. And what have you given to me? I couldn't, I've not even had a party with my friends in all this time. His father says to him, son, everything I have is yours. You know that. But we had to celebrate. It isn't up to you, it's up to me. The elder brother wants justice, but God chooses generosity. Here's another story from the Old Testament. It's a story of Jonah. Great story. Great story. <clears throat> Basically, in this story, it's the Ninevites who are supposed to get it in the neck, aren't they? They've been doing, uh, having reckless living, sexual immorality, worshipping foreign gods, all kinds of things. It's an exciting story. God says to Jonah, Jonah, go to Nineveh, this city, this capital of Assyria, of the ancient world, and tell them, because of their reckless living, their violence towards each other, their sexual immorality, their worship of foreign gods, I'm going to destroy that city in 40 days. Go and tell them. Jonah doesn't want to do it. So he goes the other way, gets on a boat thinks he can outpace God if the boat sails fast enough. But the boat has a storm. There's a storm and Jonah's thrown into the sea and God sends a whale, big fish, capture Jonah, throw him up on the beaches of Nineveh. God says to Jonah, Jonah, go to Nineveh and tell them in 40 days the city will be destroyed. Jonah finally agrees. So he goes there. It's been a long journey for him. You can see all the reckless living in the background going on there, can't you? And uh, Jonah walks around Nineveh and says, in 40 days, this city will be destroyed. In 40 days, this city will be destroyed. In 40 days, you've all, you've all had it. Because he's into it now. And then the story tells you, he then goes and sits on a hill because he wants to watch. It's going to be good. It's going to be really, really good. It's going to make Sodom and Gomorrah look like nothing this It's going to be fire and hailstones and lightning. And it's going to be like a firework display upside down. God's going to completely vape these guys. It's going to be so good. And he sits down because he's so looking forward to this. But meanwhile, what happens? He's watching there. The people of Nineveh think, actually, we have been living badly. We haven't been worshipping the one true God. And they repent. And God changes changes his, his approach and says, I'm not going to destroy Nineveh. And is sitting there waiting for this to happen. He doesn't like it. doesn't like it. He gets angry about it. He says, but I never even wanted to come here. I didn't want to do that. I knew you would do this. I knew you would do this because you're a kind God. Let's read the passage because it's quite actually humorous. In, um, in Jonah chapter 4, he climbs up the hill and ends up sulking. And when God saw what the people of Nineveh did... And how they turned from their evil ways, he relented and he did not bring on them the destruction he had threatened. But to Jonah, this seemed very wrong. He's judging God. This seemed very wrong. And he became angry. He prayed to the Lord, isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? I said, this is what I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I was right. I knew that you're a compassionate and gracious God. I knew that you're slow to anger and abounding in love. I knew that you're a God who relents from any calamity. Now, Lord, take away my life, for it is better for me to die, he says. (laughs) Very dramatic. And God says to Jonah, Jonah, is it right for you to be angry? Isn't it up to me what happens to these people? isn't it up to me what to do with these people of this city? You see, Jonah wants justice. Justice. He's come all this way. He didn't even want to come. He wanted to to stay at home. It's been a, a long journey. And the very least God could do is kill them all. I mean, that's what he said. God promised that to Jonah. Jonah wants justice, but God chooses generosity. And this idea... Of God choosing justice, sorry, God choosing generosity when we want justice is an interesting idea that comes up again and again. And then the third story that we read today, the workers in the vineyard then, they've been there since 6 a.m. Hard work in the heat of the day with the wind blowing in their faces. They end up sulking. Same thing. God says to them, Friend, I haven't cheated you. Everything I promised is yours. But what I do with these people, that's not your business. That is not up to you. That is my decision. They want justice. God chooses generosity. So we see this theme coming up again and again in the Bible, where we want justice, but God chooses generosity. And God said to the elder brother, Son, everything I have is yours but we had to celebrate because this brother of yours was lost and he's found. He was dead and he's alive. And God said to Jonah, Jonah, Nineveh is a city of 120,000 people. Isn't it up to me what to do? What is that to you? And God said to the workers who worked all day, friend, I haven't cheated you. I haven't cheated you. Everything I promised you is yours. But isn't it up to me what to do with these other people? Or are you jealous because I am generous? And God's grace isn't fair. God's grace is not fair. All three stories, and others, have the same idea of, a, of, a, of an apparently deserving people who've done the right things, and an undeserving people, and the jealousy that results. See, we can't turn God's grace. God isn't fair. God is more than fair. His fairness is not our idea of fairness, and and we will be we will be surprised by that. He might give others more grace, more forgiveness than he's giving to you or me. I think he will. In the end, the cross isn't fair. It's not about fairness. If it was fair, there wouldn't have been a cross. Is God unfair then? Yes. God is unfair, and much more than fair. Much more than fair. That is his right. That is, that is his, in his nature. And think about this. <clears throat> if God was really fair, what would that look like? If God gave us everything we deserve... Let's say that next week we decide that Louise says we're going to pray every every night this week from 8 o'clock. And we all gather together and we pray the prayer and we say, God, please give us everything we deserve. Lord, give us all that we deserve. We want it now. Please give us everything that we deserve. That would be a very dangerous prayer to pray. Because in the end, grace isn't fair. Thank God that grace isn't fair. These are the upside-down values that operate in the kingdom of God. The cross is not fair. One uh, commentator on, writing on this story puts it well, uh, and, it's, and it's a little bit harsh, but read this, what he says. It is frightening, he says, to realise that our identification with the first workers, and hence the opponents of Jesus, reveals how loveless and unmerciful we actually are. It is frightening to realise that our identification, we, are, we relate to them, with the first workers and hence with the opponents of Jesus, reveals how loveless and unmerciful we actually are. What's the point of this parable? Let's, come, let's cut to the chase. What is the point of this parable? It is not that everybody in the end receives the same reward. Right? It, the point is that when it comes to salvation, to enter into God's presence, that's up to God. That depends on His decision, and you might not agree with it. You might not agree with it. Now, uh, you might be thinking, last week, didn't we say the opposite? Will, I don't know if Will's here today, but Will preached a great sermon last week, oh there he is, on, uh, on this. There's just one of Will's slides. Great slide. Not quite, not as good as my slides, but (laughs) (laughs) quite good slide. There's quite good slide. And, uh, we had the parable of the talents, didn't we? Which was about faithfulness. And the parable of the talents seems to teach us that God cares about faithfulness. To God, it's really important that we are faithful, that we do invest our talents, that, that we produce fruit. God cares about that, and He rewards them according to that. So, uh, are we faithful servants, we, we, we heard? Are we investing the talents that God's given us? God cares about that. But, remember what I said at the start, parables are not complete theologies. Parables make a single point, usually, about one situation. And these are two different situations. So, the parable of the talents, this is, this is actually about the followers of Jesus. It's about the disciples of Jesus. It's about you and me. God cares about faithfulness. So God gives these servants five talents, three talents, one talent, whatever they are, bags of gold, whatever they are, and says, what can you do with this? And the guy with five makes another five, produces fruit. The person with three makes another three, the person with one, puts it in a hole in the ground because he's scared. And when the master comes back, when God takes back, he says, those of you who've invested and you've done something, you've produced fruit, I'm pleased with that. I'm pleased with that. It actually talks about rewards. Paul makes this even more specific. Look at 2 Corinthians 5 or 1 Corinthians 3, where Paul says, our work, your work as disciples, will be tested by the fire. Will be tested and revealed for what it is by the fire. Because God cares about what we've done. Why wouldn't he? That makes complete sense. Some Christians give their whole lives for the gospel. Other Christians perhaps lead a very marginal, mischievous Christian life, not really caring. Why wouldn't it, why, why would, why would that surprise us? So that's the parable of the talents, it's about faithfulness, the parable of the workers in the vineyard is about entry into God's kingdom. Who gets in? Essentially it's about who gets in. And it's about the fact that, uh, Even undeserving sinners are always welcome. Anybody is welcome. It's never too late to join the revolution. Somebody once put it like this, which is a little cliched, but I think it it, it makes a point. As someone once said, the entry fee to the kingdom of God is completely free. You come as you are. You're in today. But the annual subscription is everything we've got. Entry to the kingdom of God is free the annual subscription is everything we've got. So two different situations we're looking at with talents, entry into the talents is about faithfulness and about the works in the vineyard, which is entry into the kingdom. So who are these people who rock up at five o'clock not having done any work? Who do we think they are then? Talking about entry into the kingdom again, right? Well, some examples perhaps. Perhaps people that we know who've lived in an immoral or unethical way perhaps they uh, still have habits that they're struggling with i don't know this parable says they're acceptable to god as they are are there anybody that we are the people that we view perhaps differently because of what they've done because of their past god says that's up to me that's not up to you don't judge them i will bring into my kingdom whoever i choose or perhaps people have a different world view, a different lifestyle to us. Now, even a different belief system. Now, for sure we believe as Peter says in Acts chapter 4, there is only one name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. There is only one name under heaven given to men by which we must be, must be saved. It is the name of Jesus. That's that. But we, I don't know what other ways Jesus has of revealing himself to people. I don't know that. <laughs> I don't know that. To children who never make it beyond the age of two. I don't know what other ways Jesus has of revealing himself to other people. And I can't limit that. Or even the Christians of other traditions sometimes. We, we criticize Christians of other traditions because they're not doing what we do. And we say we're more biblical. Well, we need to read the Bible actually with a, with a, with a completely open mind before we say that. An informed mind. So... Thirdly, who are these people who rock up at 5 p.m.? Here's here's the the third way of looking at this, which is, do we sometimes insist on justice when we could show generosity? Are we sometimes secretly pleased when that person's project is going wrong because they never listen to us and they're they're horrible people? They 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 treat their staff badly. Perhaps we're secretly quite pleased that something bad has happened. But we're called to mimic, to be like, Christ-like, which is showing generosity when we would like to insist on justice. Now remember, this isn't saying that we approve of poor behaviour. We don't approve of that. But it's saying that we accept people regardless. That we accept people as they are. whatever, uh, However they come to us, whatever background they've had, whatever hang-ups or habits they bring with them, whatever sexuality they have, Whatever gender identity they might have, we might not approve of what of whatever comes to us, but we accept people as they are, and we and we that's who God God is bringing in. Remember, God accepted you as you were. So, um, winding up, I'm going to show you this little clip. It's from the uh, not the recent um uh, lame this, but the previous previous film. And it's a a scene where this lady, Fatim, I think that's her name, is in court. She's being judged (laughs) because she attacked a nobleman. In fact, the nobleman attacked her first. Destroyed her dress. Um, And the uh, judge, who's uh, Javert, passes sentence on her, rightly. But then somebody else walks into the room. Who's Jean Valjean, who's the hero of Les Mis in the end. Jean Valjean, his background is He has been a criminal, and he knows what it's like to have been a criminal and to be forgiven.
1: And this is what happens. Have I taken to the prison? You'll get six months. Six months? What about Cosette? What will happen to her? Who is Cosette? My daughter. If I don't send her to money, they'll turn her out. Is your daughter here in Vigo? No, sir, she lives with... Then she's not my concern. (laughs) Inspector, 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 please listen to my side. I know I hit the gentleman. I know I was wrong. But do they have the right to put snow down my dresses, especially when it's the only one I have and I need it for work? I'm sorry. I don't mean to argue. It won't happen again. Inspector, please. Please be merciful. All right. I've listened to your side. You're still getting six months. Not even the eternal father. One oh moment, Inspector. Monsieur Le Maire? You, you did this to me. You fired me. Oh, oh, slug you slug you slug slug here. come here. Let her go. What? Let me explain, Inspector. I was crossing the square when you arrested her. I asked people what had happened, and they said it was entirely the fault of the men who attacked her. In fact, they should be under arrest. Now that you've had this new evidence, I, I want you to release her. He said I can go. He is the mayor, isn't he? Well, I'll be going then. I won't be any bothered to Sergeant, who said she could go? I did. I'm the final judicial authority here in Vigo, and I say she's innocent. She spat on you. She was upset. I forgive her. She insulted you. In front of my men, she defiled you. That's my concern, Inspector. No, sir, you were wrong. You and Monsieur Le Maire are the personification of order, morality, government. In fact, the whole of society. You don't have the right to forgive her for debasing all of us. You don't have the authority to destroy justice. I do have the authority, Inspector. Under Articles 9 and 11 of the Criminal Code, I can order her release. Sergeant, she is free to go. I cannot allow that, Monsieur. I was there. She attacked him. The decision is mine. She's free. She will not go free while I am in charge of this post. In that case, Inspector, under Article 66, you were relieved of command until tomorrow morning. Monsieur and I... You were dismissed. Inspector, leave! Now Walk.
0: Walk. So a couple of lines stood out to me. First of all, when um, <clears throat> the inspector says, but she spat at you in front of my men. She defiled you. He says, that's up to me. It's not your decision. And secondly, when the inspector says, You don't have the authority to destroy justice. You don't have that authority. The mayor says, yes, I do. You're dismissed. God's justice is different to ours. God's grace is not fair. Thank God it's not fair. Thank God it's not fair. So we have this situation where we sang at the start, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. And we we, we love it when it's about wretches like me and, and us, We love God's grace. When it's about others who we think somehow shouldn't be in the kingdom, we're not so sure, are we? Sometimes we think, well, actually, no. What they're doing, I don't think God would have them. You don't know that. I don't know that. Let's just wrap it up. It's not fair. Summary, grace isn't fair. Thank God it's not fair. Thank God it's not fair, or we would all be bound for destruction. We should hold back. From considering people as inappropriate for God's kingdom or unlikely for God's kingdom. You know, I don't know what heaven is, where it is, what it's like, but I'm personally certain that it will be full of surprises. That we will be surprised by some of the people we see there. And sadly, we may be surprised at some of the people we expected to see there. It's not ours to judge. There are yet surprises in store for us. Let's pray as we think about this. Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord, that uh, grace isn't about what we've done in the past and it's not about what we can do in the future. It's about what you have already done. But that applies to other people as well. So, Lord, I pray, first of all, this week, that we would know your grace in our hearts, Lord. It doesn't matter what we've done in the past. It's about what you did on a cross 2,000 years ago. And we love that and we accept that, Lord. Help us, Father, all of us, to know that grace in our hearts. But help us too, this week, today, as we go about our business and we come across those people in our street, in our workplaces, maybe in our family who we think are completely outside your grace. Help us, Father, to see them as you see them, as your child, as a child that you love as much as we do. Give us, Lord, a little bit of grace to do that, we pray. Amen. Amen.